Well, if you could have your Bibles open at Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1, uh, that would be helpful. We'll also refer into Luke's Gospel as well. So if you've got bookmarks, you could maybe keep a bookmark in Luke chapter 1 as well. I wonder if perhaps you're one of these people who's had their fill of Christmas already. You know, we've not even got to the big day yet. And for some of us, perhaps there's been carol services, Advent things, nativities, school plays, present wrapping. Maybe you have your decorations up since December the 1st. I don't know. Tonight, we've got our carol service. And in that service, like many others, there's going to be familiar things read, familiar things sung, familiar things preached, I trust. But what effect do these things have on you? How important are the messages which they convey? Have you given enough thought to who this is all about? This Jesus. If you were here last Sunday, Pastor gave us a series of two messages entitled, Jesus, Why Did He Come? Number one was Rescue Required, where we looked at our position before God and then our problem or our condition before God. And then thirdly, God's provision in sending Jesus Christ. And we saw there, didn't we, our need of a saviour. We saw our desperate need of God to do something special to deliver us out of the position we were in. And then in the evening, we had rescue accomplished. How? Through the death and the resurrection of this Jesus, as he took the punishment that we deserve. And today we come to a passage very well known in these Christmas accounts, this account in Matthew's gospel of the birth of Jesus Christ. And simply all we'll see this morning is what God has done. We'll be amazed at the wonderful way in which God has worked and we'll recall together that this is actually God's plan, worked through history, foretold in many places in the Old Testament writings. And we're going to end by asking a simple question. What does it mean for us? So we've three headings today as we go through. Number one, God works. Number two, God speaks. Number three, God with us. So we'll come to the text uh, together. Number one, God works. Now verse 18 in Matthew's gospel says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Well, I wonder if you've ever seen people like these two. Here they are, the lovely young couple, engaged to be married, planning their lives as it stretches invitingly into a future where there's family, where there's home, where there's love, where there's security. Two, maybe three children. Good job. Maybe pets. In-laws around for tea sometimes. If you think I'm talking about Ben and Susanna, no, no, I'm not. Or maybe, maybe that fits. But this is how it is when you're engaged, isn't it? You're looking forward with great anticipation. Even I can remember how it was 23 years ago, I think. For some of you, perhaps it was longer. But we see, don't we? Mary and Joseph introduced to us in this gospel account. Mary, we're told, has been betrothed to Joseph. What does that mean? Well, when Ruth and I got engaged, it was the early summer of 1995. I think I've got that right. We went down to Chester. We went down by the river there. 
We went for a walk and in a field that I seem to remember was quite muddy, I got down on one knee and I asked her to marry me. I'd remembered the ring, I'd phoned her dad first and he can't remember the conversation actually, but he probably asked me what my prospects were or my plans to support his daughter. And then at some point later on, we told people. But back then, this betrothal stage was a bigger deal, if you like. It was a binding commitment. And to mark it, there would have been a ceremony where the couple would make solemn pledges to each other in front of witnesses. They would be saying publicly, I am yours and you are mine. So it was kind of like the wedding, but there would have been a period of time where they weren't living together. And so that's why in the next verses, if you thought, well, why is Joseph referred to as Mary's husband and why is Mary referred to as his wife? That's it. So they're in this betrothal period. So Mary and Joseph are not yet living together with all that that clearly implies to us about sexual relations. Luke puts it like this in chapter 27 of verse 1, uh, sorry, verse, verse 27 of chapter 1 in his gospel where he describes Mary as a virgin who was betrothed, promised to Joseph. So here is this couple. Everything is fine until Mary discovers she is expecting a baby. Well, how did this happen? In Luke's gospel in chapter 1, he tells us that an angel, Gabriel, appeared to Mary, telling her that she'd found favor with God and that she would have a son and that she should call his name Jesus. What was he to be like? Well, he was to be no ordinary child. He was going to be great. He was to be called the son of the highest. And the angel said to Mary, that's not it, because of his kingdom, there will be no end. Wow. When a pregnant lady goes for a scan these days, the most they can tell you, I guess, is whether you're going to have a boy or a girl, or in the case of um, my in-laws, they're about to have twins. And they can probably tell you something about the general health of the child. But can they tell you what sort of a person this child will become? Can they tell you how great the child will be? Can they tell you what he or she will accomplish? No. But this is what the angel delivers to Mary. Have you thought about how she felt? Have you wondered about this or thought of this sense of wonder that would perhaps run through her? Did she feel maybe a little fearful? And imagine that slowly dawning puzzlement as she asks the angel, a baby? How can this be? For I do not know a man. I have no husband. Have you seen the angel's reply to Mary in Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, where he says, this is something special for the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, this Holy One who is to be born is going to be called the son of God. So we can see, can't we, some very important things just from these verses. We can see that this is God at work, isn't it? If you've ever been tempted to doubt this account, don't. We can rely on the fact of the virgin birth, can't we? 
And we can notice some things about how God was at work. This event was promised. This event was promised. We see the passage, don't we, quoted in Matthew's gospel in chapter 1, where he quotes back from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, and he says, Behold, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Well, what about another promise? What about one from Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6? For unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. God is at work. This was promised. And surely we can see that salvation is God's work, isn't it? It's not ours. We can't save ourselves. Here's a reminder to us that salvation can't ever come through human effort, but it's the wonderful and it's the supernatural and it's the amazing work of God. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 and 5, we're told, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, we might receive the adoption as sons. This is God's work. And can't we also notice that in this account of the virgin birth, we see that Jesus is both God and man, as we've thought already this morning. wonder if you've ever turned over in your mind, how else could this plan have played out? Maybe you'd say, well, couldn't God have sent Jesus to earth as a fully grown adult? But if God had done that, then would we so easily have accepted Jesus as fully God and fully man? Shouldn't we instead just marvel at the wisdom of God in how he worked this the way that he did? Can't we be humbled by the wonderful and mysterious way in which there is this human and this divine hand in the birth of Jesus? fully man and fully God. For this is God with us, having this unique conception by the work of the Holy Spirit, which Luke describes in chapter one and verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and therefore the child to be born will be called holy. And then as the angels announce, he's the sinless one. He's the one who will save his people from their sins. Now, if you follow things in the media over any period of time, you'll see that there's people who over the years have either claimed to be God or to be some kind of special messenger from God. They claim to have special knowledge. They claim to have special status. They want people to follow them. Maybe they even claim to be some kind of Messiah. But every single one of those people has something in common, don't they? What is it? They sin. They sin. Every one of us does. But the Bible is absolutely clear that Jesus was without sin. Can you really get your head around that for a moment? That Jesus never sinned. Now, when did you and when did I last sin? If we're honest, really honest, can you go back five minutes, ten minutes? What have you been thinking about? Half an hour, 
before this church service, last night, it's no good, is it? We have to admit what we're like. But Jesus was without sin. Remember the devil tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, didn't he? Did he succeed? No, he failed. Remember how the Jews accused Jesus of all kinds of things, but they couldn't make anything stick, could they? And Jesus said in John chapter 8, which of you convicts me of sin? In John chapter 8, Jesus also makes this stunning proclamation about himself where he says, I am the light of the world. Can anyone else truly say that? As the writer of the Hebrews puts it in chapter 4, Jesus is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. God is at work. In this account, we see God at work. We can be amazed at what God has done, at the wonderful way in which God chose to send his son, fully God and fully man. And secondly, we see God speak. God speaks. We'll go from verse 19 through to 23 of Matthew chapter 1. And let's see what else is said here in this narrative. So where, where are we? Here's this couple, almost married. And suddenly the bride announces that she's pregnant. And the bridegroom knows with absolute certainty that this child is not his. Imagine for a moment how this would feel. Imagine the moment that Mary says to Joseph, I have something to tell you, I'm pregnant. Imagine being in that situation. Imagine being Joseph for a moment. Does the bottom fall out of his world? What does he now think of Mary? What will people now think of him, perhaps he thinks? What of the shame this would bring? What of their future? What of their family home? What of the children that maybe now he'll never have if they separate? Those are the sorts of things that most people might, may think. And verse 19 of Matthew chapter 1 just lifts the lid on Joseph's emotions a little bit, doesn't it? In an understated sort of way. And as he runs through it all in his mind, Joseph's conclusion seems to be, must be, that Mary must have been unfaithful to him. Mustn't she? So what's Joseph to do? Did he love Mary? Yes. Did he want her as his wife? He did. Was Joseph a good person? Well, verse 19 tells us he was a just man. He wanted to do what was right. But she'd broken her vows to him, so he thinks. So he's got a couple of options, hasn't he? He can make a big public scene or he can divorce her quickly and quietly. The first option would have put Mary through all kinds of public shame, wouldn't it? Or even worse. And Joseph didn't want to bring that on her, it says. We're told he was a man of principle. We're told he was a, a just and perhaps a kind man. So Joseph decides in his mind he's going to go for the, the quieter, the more compassionate approach. He'll divorce her quietly. And look at verse 20. As he's thinking over these things, look what happens. God meets Joseph at perhaps his lowest point, And God has a message for him. And all of this thinking has maybe exhausted Joseph. And we assume he's, he's asleep. And God speaks in this dream. 
we're told in verse 20, through an angel, through a special messenger with words for Joseph from God himself. God knows what Joseph needs to hear, doesn't he? He knows that he needs comfort. He needs reassurance. And here's these words, Joseph, Joseph, son of David. Are you thinking of divorcing Mary? Are you thinking of putting her away? Well, don't. Don't do that. Don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife, is the message. Don't worry about bringing her into your home. You think she's been unfaithful to you? No, not at all. This is the work of God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, we're told in verse 20. And so through the angel, God tells Joseph what he must do. How do you think those words of the angel would have appeared? I think they'd have been very surprising, wouldn't they? Very startling. There wouldn't have been much that would have got Joseph prepared for the idea of a birth like this, would there? That would have taken some getting his head around. A virgin birth, a message about a birth unique in history. Well, perhaps Joseph needed a message like this so that he could accept it. Mary has had a visit from the angel in Luke chapter 1. Now Joseph has had a visit from the angel too. They've both had this message from God, the same message delivered to them. So it would have been surprising, it would have been startling, but it would also have been very comforting, wouldn't it? Can you imagine the relief that would flood through Joseph now as he thinks about his future with this woman? How happy he must have felt, mustn't he? For the sake of Mary and for his own sake. Now he can, he can be Mary's protector. Now he can defend her honour, if you like. Now they can have their future. And here again is this promise that this is God at work. Because in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1, the message from God goes on. It says, she will give birth to a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. So here's this message. It's wonderful, isn't it? God delivers this message. The Holy Spirit has done this wonderful work. Mary has this amazing and unique role to play in, in history, to be the instrument of God chosen like this, to be described, as Luke puts it, as becoming blessed among women. And so Joseph is told, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And if you were here last Sunday, that's what we thought about. That we saw that our problem was sin. That our condition was separation. And the fact that a rescue operation was so utterly necessary. And Jesus is coming to save his people from their sins. He is the saviour. He is the one. He is the only one who could do this. And he has done it, hasn't he? God speaks and God works and God tells us that the Christ is coming. And then Matthew reminds us in verses 22 and 23 that this is the fulfillment of prophecy spoken long before. All this took place, he says, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. And he refers back to that prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. You see, the Bible is God's word. The Bible is God speaking. 
can we ask you? What do you think of God's word? What does it mean to you? You may well not get a personal visit from the angel like these two have here, but you can have God's word in your hand. You can have God's word to you. You can hear it preached. You can know that God says that this Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. So God works and God speaks. And then thirdly and finally, God with us. God with us. And so this part of the story in Matthew's account comes to a, an end. Joseph gets up from his bed, we're told, after this dream is done, after this message from God has been delivered. And Joseph, just very simply, obeys God. He does what God says. And now Joseph can take Mary into his home with no hesitation, with no reservation. He can take her to himself or worries about what people will think. And we're told that when the special child is born, they name him Jesus, exactly as they've been told to do. And this is the amazing event, isn't it, that we remember. And in the gospel accounts, we see some reactions as this Jesus is born. And so what does this Christmas account mean to you and mean to me today? I wonder perhaps if for you, your reaction is like the shepherds that we thought about with the children just then. The shepherds who came to worship as the angels had appeared to them in the fields. And the skies had been filled with those heavenly hosts praising God for what he's done. And the shepherds, what did they do? They ran back into the fields. They praised God. They couldn't tell people enough. And they couldn't praise God enough for what he had done. Are you like the shepherds? Are you overawed by this? Do you have a sense of wonder and amazement at the coming of the Savior? Do you want to go and tell whoever you can? Maybe for you, you're a bit like the wise men from Matthew chapter 2. I wonder, have you determined that your life should be an offering to God? And as those wise men traveled long to find this new king and offered the gifts and worship to him, is Jesus worth following that much for you? Is Jesus worth all that effort to you? Are you like the wise men? Or are you perhaps a bit like King Herod? King Herod, remember, was troubled by these things, wasn't he? He didn't like the idea that there was a king, another king on the scene. He didn't like the fact that there was a threat to him and to his power and to his way of life. A king more powerful than you or me with a claim on your life. Does that trouble you? Are you perhaps glad that Christmas only comes around once a year so you can put it all back into its box till next year, just like the decorations? Or are you perhaps thinking, I don't really know what I think about all this. I don't know if there is a God or if there was such a man as Jesus. I don't know why he came among us. Well, hopefully we've seen through this account and that the Bible tells us that God has come to earth that God has come into the world, into the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And that our position and our condition mean we can't do anything to save ourselves. We need, don't we, someone to do it for us. 
We can't deal with our own sin. A rescue was required, wasn't it? And so God comes. God with us. He sends his own son to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. The infant child, fully God, fully man, coming into the world on a divine mission to save a fallen humanity. It's time, isn't it, for us to remember that God has come into the world and we can let the Christmas songs and hymns and carols retell some of this story for us, can't we? We started by singing, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Or we sang, see amid the winter snow, born for us on earth below. See the Lamb of God appears, promised from eternal years. Hail, thou ever blessed morn. Or a carol by Frank Horton describes it like this. Thou who art God, beyond all praising, all for love's sake became man, stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenwards by thine eternal plan. And what should our reaction be? He goes on. Thou who art love beyond all telling, saviour and king, we worship thee. Emmanuel within us dwelling, make us what thou would have us be. That's the response we should have to the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. We worship you, Lord. Make us what you would have us be. Have you done that today? Have you come to God in worship and in repentance and said, Lord, I am yours. Do with me whatever you would. And in the words of our closing carol, they tell us that thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when you came to earth for me. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for thee. Can you sing this and can you mean it today?